Please remain standing for the reading of God's word. We're only going to read a portion of a longer passage we're going to work our way through, but this is the heart of the passage. John chapter 6, verses 32 and following. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, from now on, give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Heavenly Father, these are familiar words to the Christian ear. We often go to this passage as we take the Lord's Supper and take into our hands the elements of the the bread and the cup that signify the body and blood of Christ, sacrificed for us on the cross. But Father, let familiarity not uh, lead us to take them for granted. I pray that we would turn to the Lord Jesus for our ultimate satisfaction and that we would live each day as we would uh, work for our Savior, as we would serve him, that we would with all our heart pursue the things he calls us to pursue, that we would give ourselves to uh, work and to uh, fellowship, to family, uh, to uh, being salt and light in the community, that there would be many desires that well up within us that he gives to us. But let our ultimate satisfaction be found in Christ himself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This was really a bad weekend for the women's retreat. Because as a Tennessee football fan, we were playing Alabama yesterday. And it's something to get wiped with over 60 points scored upon you. Mary doesn't watch football. And I think women's retreat, this is going to be my football day. And what a downer day it was yesterday. But what what is worse, to have a team that is not of national significance, who gets drubbed by the number one team in the nation by over 60 points, or to be the number two team in the nation and gets drubbed by unranked Purdue. Sorry, Ohio State fans, but the Purdue coach said something after the game that I just almost just, I was listening to the news, going to, going to sleep, going to bed, just kind of getting the summary of the game. So I almost made me leap out of bed because it so fit what we're talking about this morning. What do you hunger for? What is it you want the most? And the Purdue coach said to his team, look what can be accomplished when you're hungry enough. I thought... The commitment that I, I remember learning commitment in sports is something of value uh, when you are called to give all of yourself and more than you thought you could, not for yourself, but for the team. I learned obedience. You played the position that the coach assigns. There's a lot that is of value in that. And it reminded me again, am I 
Are we hungry enough to follow our Savior? To put the kind of effort into life that the Purdue players put on the field? What do you hunger for? We're beginning a series that uh, is a series on the I am statements of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And it's easy to go to the, uh, the, the objects themselves. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the door of the good shepherd, the resurrection of the life, the way, the truth, and the life, the vine. And miss to our English ears the significance of the I am. In John chapter 8, Jesus highlight, highlighted the significance of that. And his uh, Pharisee hearers knew exactly what he was claiming by that. If you have your Bibles open, turn with me to John chapter 8, verse 56. This is at the end of a real, this is a sharp uh, an argument between Jesus and the Pharisees as it is presented in the gospel. The culmination of it is this. We won't go into all the argument. That's a a message for another time. But Jesus said, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you have seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. You have to see that even in the English ear, before Abraham was born, I am is an awkward statement. It rises above our normal way of thinking. What is Jesus saying? You have to go back to the Old Testament to realize the significance of what he was claiming. For he was claiming for himself the very name of God himself. Back in in Exodus chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, we read about Moses speaking with the Lord at the burning bush. Excuse me, not there. It's Exodus 3, verse 14. Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites I am has sent me. To you. Once you see that, you know what Jesus is claiming before the Pharisees. He is claiming to be God Himself. They knew it, that's why they tried to, to kill Him at that point. In their minds, since they didn't believe, they believed it to be blasphemy. And to, to blaspheme the name of God deserved death because they didn't believe. But we have to know that this was Jesus' claim. The name has a a kind of meaning. God is saying to us, to Moses, to the Israelites, and to us, you don't define me. 
I am not the God of your imagination. You can't just think this is the way I I want God to be and worship a God of your own making. That's an idol. An idol may be made of wood and stone or could be made of something else. If, if this is what is most important to you and you, you start thinking, well, if there is a God, he must be this way. And you worship a God of your imagination. That's a kind of idol. You don't define me. I am who I am. We need to acknowledge in our hearts, he is who he, he is. When uh, we first came here in 1982, our oldest son, Davidson, was four years old. And in that uh, first year, we had... Uh, on Sunday nights, uh, it was really uh, the first covenant group. It was made up of the whole church. And on the, the last Sunday of, of each month, one Sunday of each month, we had to stump the pastor night. Any question, it was the original of the uh, children's sermon in the box. And Davison, as a four, maybe he turned five-year-old, raised his hand and he said, Who made God? I said, what? Where did God come from? I said, he was always there. He's not like everything else that has to have a beginning. He was always there. And you looked and said, now he had to come from somewhere. Who made God? And I realized that was the hardest question I had gotten all from, from everybody. We don't define God. He and his being is eternal. He's always there. He is who he is. So the name has content. And it basically calls on us to bow the knee, to recognize he's God. We define ourselves in relation to him. So when Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, this is a claim to deity. Then he begins to reveal to him, reveal himself to us through these I am statements. We don't define him. He defines himself and begins to relate to us through I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the vine. The significance of these statements is that We're not just finding and shaping a nice God that will please us. God who is who he is. Is all all this to us. And we begin with, I am the bread of life. I know what it's like to be hungry. It's not an outstanding claim. Most people could probably think of it at some uh, point in time of their lives, but it's it's usually it's not typical actually because usually there's a vending machine or something around where we can assuage our hunger to make it to the next meal. I've realized that since that's always around, how unique this period of time in my life was when I was uh, at summer school in the Black Hills with Wheaton College's science station, and we would have biology and geology classes in the morning sometimes they were very active they were hands-on out in the black hills studying the rocks and studying the fauna and flora uh, of the the region so we were uh, out in the summertime and working up an appetite and then we would finish before uh, lunch in 45 minutes to an hour before lunch and just had to wait and there was no vending machine there's no 
cafe or deli to go to nearby. We just had to wait. And the one thing that we could do is go to the mailboxes and find out, did we get any mail? And Mary and I had been dating for a year. And every now and then, there would be a letter from her, and that would give me something to do during that time. Other times, there would not be a letter. And I'd be disappointed about that. You know, as we were at that stage of relationship, and I was hungry. I remember just sitting there waiting for the cafe doors, the cafeteria doors to open where we could come in. And there was nothing that I wanted more than to eat. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 6, Jesus is out far from any town, and there are 5,000 families. When they would count the 5,000, they would be uh, heads of households. So it could have been 10, 12, 15,000 people out there. Who knows uh, how many? And the disciples come to him and say, what shall we do is getting late, send the people home. But Jesus has compassion on their physical need. He taught us in the Lord's Prayer to pray, give us this day our daily bread. This isn't only be concerned about spiritual things and the physical things, the daily things are unimportant. The Bible tells us that God knows what we need. He will supply what we need. But he longs for us to long for something greater than just the daily need. It's not that it's invalid, it's just it's not the ultimate. And so Jesus feeds the 5,000. And then he uh, departs from the crowd. He sends the disciples off in the boat. They go across the lake. He walks on water. And they see him. And then they arrive on the other shore, the other side of the lake. And the crowd is looking for him. They see there's only one boat. Where did he go? And they go around the lake. And in verse, we'll pick up our passage in chapter 6. Verse 24, once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. You're looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves And had your fill. Consider how indicting that is. They had been fed out of little. The five loaves and two fishes. There are twelve basketfuls left over. At least they could have had the spiritual awareness. The spiritual heart. That this could be the Messiah. That this is a, a man who has the power of the spirit. They could have marveled at the miracles and sought him for that. That would have been a step in the right direction. But Jesus is indicting them for just craving food for the stomach. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. On him the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Oh, they realized this is Sunday school. Let's ask a spiritual question. 
Perhaps they were trying to impress Jesus with this. Perhaps it was a sincere question. I ask you in this section, and this is a longer passage, hang with me when I'm reading the scripture itself, because we'll read portions, small comment, let the text speak for itself in many ways. Don't glaze over and think I'm going to explain it later. What do you need to believe? They ask the question, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. There's a surprise in that because we think of works as something we do. And Jesus answers it with faith. You need to trust, believe in, is not just believe about You need to believe in the one whom God has sent. So they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers ate the manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. What? Remember, these are people that had just been fed on the other side of the lake with a miraculous sign that they'd already seen. And yet they're still testing Jesus because of their closed eyes, because of their unhearing ears, because they were craving simply uh, food for the stomach. They were hungry again. And they asked, what miraculous sign will you give that we may see it when they just seen it? Now, as we laugh at them, let's realize that we have the ultimate miraculous sign. We have the resurrected Christ himself. We have the one who was crucified, dead, and buried as we just professed. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead. But how many times do we come when we have some daily need? It's a job. It's a relationship that's broken. It's you know, whatever is hurting. And we say, God, if you're there. If you're really there, do this for me. You see, that prayer is just such a closed eyes kind of prayer. When we pray and pray in Jesus' name, we're praying not just with the little magic words at the end of the prayer. We come to our Heavenly Father with faith and trust in Jesus Christ who has already risen from the dead. He has already proved his love for us. He has already proved his power to make good on his promises to to give eternal life to all who believe. If there's anyone who could back up that kind of promise, it's the one who has risen from the dead. We don't need any more sign that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he's there, that his promises are true. But how often do we end up saying in prayer to God, if you're there? We might not use those words, but... We're thinking, prove yourself, God. I don't hear you. You're silent. You must not care. Why? Because you're not doing what I want. So that's the the crowd's response. And they appeal to Moses. They know their Sunday school lessons. They know their Bible. Our forefathers ate the man in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread 
from heaven. Right there, he's showing the crowd as they are challenging him. They're still looking at what they can see. Moses gave the bread. Instead of realizing from that Old Testament lesson, Moses couldn't supply the bread from heaven. God supplied the bread from heaven. Even with that tangible, miraculous sign in the wilderness, they didn't look up to trust in God. They learned their Sunday school lesson that Moses gave the bread. And Jesus said, look up. It's your father, my father in heaven, who gives the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Now, here's a a verse where uh, I still use the uh, NIV that was originally put out. They uh, changed to a a newer version. And this is one of my quibbles with the newer NIV because I thought this changes the verse in substance. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. But on further study, on deeper study, I realize that the pronoun that is translated in this verse, he, is a neutral gender pronoun. Jesus hasn't yet declared himself as he will in just a couple of verses. The bread, for the bread of God is that bread, is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. That's an accurate translation. That's why when they hear Jesus say that, they're still thinking of something like manna. They're still hungry. They think, give me a divine miracle that will meet my my gut need. My here and now belly need. That sounds good. They say, sir, from now on, give us this bread. Now, Jesus Closes the deal. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now Jesus is aware that this is not what they're asking for. But he knows their greatest need. Their greatest need is not to be well fed until they die stand before God in judgment and pay for their own sins forever in hell. That's not their greatest need is just to be physically satisfied until that day. Their greatest need, what will really satisfy their soul is when they are reconciled to God himself. When they are prepared to stand before God in his holiness with their sins already covered. That's what atonement means. It means covered already paid for. And they can stand before God made righteous, clothed in the righteousness that they need to be worthy to stand before God. And Jesus is saying, I feel that need. They don't yet know how he's going to do it. But he uses this metaphor of bread to begin to demonstrate that just as much as your bodies, your physical bodies need physical food, I can meet your greater spiritual needs through my body given for you so that you can stand before God made worthy of eternal life with him. Jesus knows they're not there yet. Verse 36, but as I told you, you have seen me 
and still you do not believe. Go back and look at all the miracles Jesus has done up to this point. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Now, the, these next verses are, are a classic passage for God's sovereignty and our salvation of predestination. The context is that they are rejecting Jesus. And Jesus is saying, You're re- I'm not dependent upon your accepting or rejecting me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. See, there's the claim that Jesus is the bread of life and he will satisfy our spiritual needs then begins to reveal itself in a promise. I will never drive away those who come to me. I will satisfy your souls. I will do all that is needed, all that is necessary for you to stand before God in heaven. And he builds on this promise. First, I'll never drive away. Verse 38, for I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but will raise them up at the last day. Let's put together uh, that I will lose none of them and I will never drive them away. And then add to it, I will raise them up at the last day. The promise unfolds. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up at the last day. So we we add, raise Him up at the last day, eternal life thereafter. That's the astounding promise that comes with the claim that Jesus is the, the bread of life that will meet our spiritual need, our greatest need, our ultimate need. And what's their response? You would think... After they'd experienced the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000, they had seen other miracles that Jesus was doing, that this would be the great, he is the greatest preacher ever. What if I'd asked you at the very beginning about a preacher who reduced the size of his congregation from 5,000 and his sermon was so awful that the next Sunday only 12 people showed up? That's Jesus. It's Jesus here. At this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can you now say, I came down from heaven? See, what is in their heart begins to unfold. They have rejected him already. The, the wonderful claims, the promise that unfolds from that brings this response and their rejection of him becomes more overt. He can't be the bread from heaven. Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who listens to the Father and learns from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the Son, except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth. He who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Second time he said that just directly. Your forefathers ate the man in the desert, yet they died. Even that miraculous gift of bread that fed the stomach was not what they ultimately needed. That was just a sign that God was providing for them. But the ultimate provision is Christ. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Now in our study on our commitment to scripture, we talked about how to interpret scripture. We have to understand the tools of language that God used. He used human language to reveal his word to us. We have to understand how human language works. Jesus is using a metaphor that has real meaning. It's not like, oh, a metaphor is not really true. No, as a metaphor, it is really true. He is not advocating literal cannibalism. That's absurd. We don't find that anywhere else. That is pressing a different tool onto the language of of a kind of a, a literal nature that is not what Jesus means. The literal nature means the literal sense he's using a metaphor. But the metaphor is really true. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is real spiritual food. And bread for the body is the apt metaphor for bread for the soul. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. But if you don't want to believe, then you can start using this as reasons to reject Jesus all the more. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. He didn't back off his metaphor. He was pushing it in their faces all the more dramatically. It's like, if you don't want to believe, this will be a stumbling block to you. He doesn't try to soften it to make it so that people who are rejecting him find him more acceptable. You either get what he's saying or you don't and you find all the more reason to not believe. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came, that came down from heaven. Your forefathers ate manna and died, but he who feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, we find in the rest of the scriptures the backup to my assertion. Jesus was not asserting cannibalism here. He, the night before he goes to the cross, takes the two elements of the Lord's Supper and works the other side, the, the other side of the coin of this metaphor. And he takes bread and says, this is my body. He takes the cup and says, this is my blood. And they partake of the Lord's Supper. And he's telling them, as you take this to your physical bodies, what I'm going to do for you in my physical body tomorrow on the cross is to sacrifice my body. It will be nailed to the cross. My blood will be shed. And what I am doing physically has an even deeper spiritual significance. For I am taking the wrath of God, 
poured out on the sins of the world and paying the penalty in full. This is what you really need. Because if you partake of me, if you believe in me, if you trust in me, if you are united to me, then your sins are actually paid for. You are actually clothed in the righteousness that, that, that I give to you. My perfect righteousness. And you can stand before God and be worthy of heaven eternal. That's what you really need. I ask you, is that what you really crave? If you don't, this will be a great turnoff. On hearing it, verse 60 I'll just read verse 60 and verse 66. Many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Verse 66. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. What do you really hunger for? Is it just the daily, just the here and now? I tell you, this doesn't mean that you have to be passive about all of life and only care about the things of heaven. This means that your eyes are fixed on Christ. Your heart is set on the things that are eternal. And then you turn in this life as stewards of everything God gives you. And you can give your all. And all you do, do it with all your heart as unto the Lord. Whatever your job is, whatever your role is in your family, even the sports, whatever, you can pour yourself into them, but not as though they are the ultimate. You're just a steward there. And you serve the one who gave his life for you, so you can give your, back to the sports illustration, give 110% in your job, in your family, in your school, in your sports. You rise up and do that, but not making those things an idol. For you find your eternal and ultimate satisfaction in the one who gave his life for you. And you understand the metaphor. Just as we need bread for our bodies, how much more do we need Christ for our souls? And our bodies are not left out for when we know Christ That eternal life includes, in the last day, the resurrection of the body, where we will live forever with him. What do you hunger for? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would be at work in us by your spirit to to enable us to long for the right things, to worship our Lord Jesus, who gave his life for us and to live for him with all of our hearts, with our various stages of life, our various responsibilities, our various callings, but never simply and only asking for daily bread. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.